Well, it's been another couple of uh, interesting weeks since uh, Jason Matthews and I last uh, visited about what the hell's going on in the world. Uh, Jason, I, I hope you enjoyed uh, the week off, the 4th of July celebration, Independence Day. But glad to have you back to break down <laughs> some of these key items. Where do we begin? Uh, yesterday, uh, or the other day, I guess, uh, we had the Supreme Court of the United States come out. A couple of big cases, one of which dealing with Oklahoma, but I want to focus on uh, taxes. Uh, the president uh, came out four years ago, promised everybody, hey, you know what, I'm going to release my taxes. And of course, hasn't lived up to that word amongst other things. Supreme Court now saying, yeah, uh, you got to adhere to some of this. What's the takeaway for you? Well, just have to preface it this way. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a legal analyst. And I wasn't an English major. Uh, but I do know enough about Shakespeare to know that Shakespeare explains a lot and the old line, thou protesteth too much. Um, you know, the president has used a lot of political capital and expended a lot of energy in preventing these taxes from coming to light. And he is the uh, only president since the 1970s not to release his tax returns. Um, the, the Supreme Court yesterday heard, or last week now, heard two cases. Uh, the cases that they heard uh, dealt with um, subpoenas from Congress and the president's thus far, his refusal to comply with those subpoenas. And the other case dealt with um, the investigation by the Manhattan district attorney into bank and possible tax fraud in the state of New York. And the Supreme court ruled seven to two in both of those cases. Uh, the, the ruling essentially to the Congress was very simply this. You can't go on a fishing expedition. You have to prove that there's a necessity for the records. That request has to be narrow in scope. And you have to show the courts that your subpoena serves a legislative purpose. Because what you had was you had multiple committees that were wanting to look at multiple records. But within that ruling, and both of these rulings were, were authored by Chief Justice John Roberts, was the most important point of all, which was Congress's power of oversight is still paramount in our system of checks and balances. So the Supreme Court said, Congress, you have to meet this criteria. Now go back to the lower courts and essentially uh, comply with this standard. And then the lower courts will decide um, whether or not the executive branch, the president in this case, has to comply. So that was on the face of it, it looked like a loss for the Congress. Actually, it was clarifying and Congress can now go back to the court system. The real, uh, and I think this is the most important ruling of all, uh, as it directly impacts the president, is the decision uh, in, in the New York case uh, with, with Trump versus Vance, Cy Vance, the Manhattan district attorney. And the Supreme Court's argument there was to the president, there's no such thing as absolute immunity for presidents. Uh, presidents are not above the law, and you're not a king. And therefore, this is a criminal inquiry these are subpoenas. Uh, you have to comply with those subpoenas just like you would any other citizen. The president's lawyers were making this, you know, this insane argument that he had absolute immunity. And John Roberts, Roberts came back and he said very simply, you can argue your case in court just like anybody else mm -hmm. as any other citizen. Uh, so the bottom line yesterday, uh, last week was that the rule of law still stands. Uh, and and I've, I've always felt that um, the the case in Manhattan is the is the one that Trump is most worried about. Well, and to the overarching, when you talk about the rule of law, nobody's above the law. Um, there's no you know absolute immunity if you're the president. We don't have kings, and we look at the seven two decision because uh, you can already see it. In fact, Ted Cruz 
uh, you know, Republican senator from Texas being one of those leading the charge saying, oh, the, the liberal court is, you know, as these guys joined this liberal court as though it was the ideology instead of stand, upholding the rule of law, which we all, you know, try to pound the table and talk about that being the cornerstone of this entire country. Uh, you see tweets of law and order, except for when, of course, you're maybe on the wrong side of the law. But when you have two of those seven being uh, justices that are appointed by this president, that stands out. That actually, uh, of the everything, of, of the concern over the last three, four, five, six years of where we find ourselves in, in American politics and institutions and the lack of confidence in those. We've seen the Department of Justice go the way of which it has. You've seen uh, a Congress at moments not want to stand up with their checks and balances. And then you really started to worry, at least some people, about will the court step up and say, look, this is the way the American system is supposed to work. And ultimately yesterday or the other day, my takeaway was almost a sigh of relief that, okay, somebody finally stood up and said, Nope, we've got laws. We do have order. Even if it is focused on you, there are rules and norms that we're going to adhere to. No question about it. And, and the one thing about John Roberts is John Roberts is, is very much a conservative. I mean, he is, he is moving the court to the right. Um, but he is a, a pragmatic conservative. He is an institutionalist at his core, and he is going to protect the integrity of the court system. Uh, you, you mentioned uh, Trump's two appointees, Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh. Neil Gorsuch is shaping up to be one of the most interesting justices on the court because he is at his core a libertarian. Uh, he has uh, authored in the last, the last um, court term uh, along with Ruth Bader Ginsburg, an opinion that was a dissenting opinion on, on um, trying in both federal and state cases, um, double jeopardy, uh, not to get into the weeds on that. Mm -hmm. uh, yesterday's ruling, he authored the, uh, uh, the opinion on, um, on the uh, McGirt opinion in Oklahoma, thank you, um, where he, he joined the four liberal justices on that case, which said essentially that the eastern half of Oklahoma is Native American land, that the federal government, if you haven't clarified that, you promised in a treaty, and if you haven't clarified it, we're just going to say that it's, you know, based on the lack of any clarification, that the eastern half of Oklahoma is tribal land. Um, you know, and then a few weeks earlier, he was the one that authored the opinion um, that said that the Civil Rights Act does protect against discrimination, um, against uh, uh, gays and lesbians. So he, he's been very fascinating. Kavanaugh, on the other hand, has been uh, very much a, what you would expect a, a conservative justice to be. Um, he, he is very much usually in that um, five to four, um, either he's with the four conservatives or he's with the majority when Roberts joins them. Uh, but Gorsuch is the one that, that seems to confound, confound the, um, the conservatives, uh, even though he's you know a strong conservative. One thing that's interesting though, about Gorsuch, and, and this is something that I don't think gets reported enough, is the lack of diversity on the Supreme Court. When you think of diversity, we always think of race and gender. Um, we also have to think about geographic diversity. Gorsuch is the only justice on the court from the West. He comes from Colorado. Mm -hmm. And if you go back and you look at Gorsuch's opinions when he was a federal uh, appeals court judge and now on the Supreme Court, he consistently votes with the tribes. Um, and, and when you're out in the East, you come from the East Coast, you don't think of tribal 
law. You don't think of tribal rights. Um, this is why I think it's important that when you consider Supreme Court justices, you look at not only um, background in terms of diversity, you also look at representation from across the country. So Gorsuch brings a Westerner's view um, to, to tribal issues, and that came out yesterday. Uh, the last thing on the, the Supreme Court, because I want to get into the Russian bounty scandal that we've uh, not had a chance to talk about. Uh, when it comes to back to the tax decisions, I know there's a lot of people that are, uh, all right, we're finally going to see, you know, all the finances, all that. And that's not necessarily going to be the case. And I, I want to underscore that because the, the New York decision goes to a grand jury. That means you and I and anyone listening is not going to see this. And the congressional side uh, of things, you, you got to go back to the courts and basically narrow that focus down and that's not going to happen prior to november so if people think all right this is going to put the final piece of the puzzle together on perhaps why there hasn't been a stronger uh you know uh call to action on the russian bounty thing because oh the finances they're all it all makes sense now we're not going to get that before november you're not and in that regard that was a big victory for trump yesterday because he, he's been wanting to run out the clock there uh, but but here's the danger here for trump and I, I i've always said that donald trump is more concerned about the manhattan district attorney than he is jerry nadler who's the chair of the house judiciary committee because if congress got their hands on those tax records he could make the political argument here and make it a, a partisan issue but but cy vance here and this has always been the achilles here heel here now nobody knows what's in those records and the only reason, a little background here, the only reason Trump is in this position today is because he authorized the, the hush payments to Stormy Daniels, the adult film actress who didn't, who, who didn't stay quiet. And Michael Cohen released uh, all that information. And, and hence, um, here, here you have the request from the state, the state prosecutor wanting to get this information. And then the New York Times comes out with their expose, which we now know that information was provided by Trump's niece. So the family drama, the soap opera continues there. But, but that's the reason that he's in this position today. And the danger for Trump is, if he doesn't win re-election in November, um, the, the, the Manhattan district attorney is going to get those records. That's going to be sent to a, a grand jury. That grand jury process is going to be confidential, mm -hmm. but there is a very real prospect here next year. If Donald Trump is a former president, that if something nefarious is in those tax records, those financial files, that he faces the very real prospect of state prosecution, of being indicted and facing trial. Um, and that is um, something that we've never seen in American history. Um, it, it's, it's going to be a spectacle, um, and, and it's going to be fascinating to watch how that, how that plays out. That's the ultimate danger there. And, and the, other, the other real landmine, if you will, is any time in these financial cases, um, you start, they're like, uh, it's like an onion. You start peeling back the layers of the onion and you find more and more and more um, information. Um, we'll just see how, how it plays out. Yeah. Jason Matthews. Uh, that's the other guy. I'm Tyler Axmas. So just talking about what the hell's going on in the world uh, of this week, I guess. Uh, and th this, uh, this item isn't from this week, but uh, we did take last week off for the, uh, the, the holiday week end of the independence day so we can celebrate good old us of a uh but we've got troops overseas right now jason uh we have you know for decades now over in afghanistan story comes out that um the president was briefed 
uh, they, they say, well, it was verbally briefed. He didn't read the briefings, and now there's a dispute on that. But about Russia, Vladimir Putin uh, putting bounties on the heads of Americans, which I've had callers in my KFGO radio show two to four Monday through Friday. Uh, those that served in, say, Vietnam saying, well, bounties isn't something new. The thing that is the the frustrating moment and what I find myself still furious about is the fact that you've got the commander-in-chief not doing anything to our knowledge to push back on Russia that is targeting American troops. What's your thoughts on this whole scandal? Well, speaking of peeling back the layers of the onions, just the other day, uh, General Milley and Defense Secretary Esper were on Capitol Hill and they both briefed lawmakers that they had been informed and briefed on the Russian bounty, which contradicts uh, what Trump and Pence are both saying that, well, we didn't, we didn't get that information. Um, so there's obviously a cover up here. Uh, this this is, I think, um, devastating on multiple levels here because there is no higher responsibility that a president has than to be commander in chief. And and this is um, if this is true and the evidence is pointing out that it sure looks that way. This is a dereliction of duty likes, which we haven't seen with the commander in chief. And the, the danger here, and not to overuse that expression, is that it, it just is, is another, uh, you know, another log in the fire that shows um, that Trump and Putin have this relationship, whatever that relationship is. Um, and I'm not going to get into speculation here, um, but that, that there's something there. Um, you know, Nancy Pelosi made the, you know, reportedly stood up to Trump at a, at a meeting with congressional leaders. And she said to, to the president, you know, all roads lead back to Putin. Um, you know, this, this, you know, really uh, adds more evidence to that. You know, what, what is the extent of the relationship that's there between the president and Putin? Um, and, and this is, um, <clears throat> this what, what, what's really fascinating to look at this is that the Republican Party has traditionally been the strong on national defense party. Uh, you know, you go back and you look at Ronald Reagan and the evil empire, Mr. Gorbachev, tear it down this wall. And Republicans have always had strong support from from the military. And this this information that's coming out in the Russian bounties um, is is showing in the polls, at least that there's slippage there amongst military support for the president, particularly veterans. Uh, the other thing that it's done is it has unleashed a torrent of, uh, or a current of, of um, political ads that are some of the most brutal that we've seen this cycle narrated by veterans who have served in Afghanistan. Um, and, and this, I think this is not going to go away. Well, and it, and it shouldn't. And, you know, this, news cycle pattern that we've been in for, uh, you know, the last decade of, uh, well, you know, 24 hour news, uh, 48 hour. We'll forget. Well, it'll be, we'll be onto the next thing. This one, I don't think is going away. And, and yeah. here's, you know, and let me bring this home to North Dakota or you and I call home of, uh, you know, we've got a three member delegation, all Republican. And it is tough to get criticism uh, from them mm -hmm. on situations. And you have, and somebody that I focus on, because I think that John Holvin, uh, you know, as governor in this state for a long time, all right, you know, he'd go out there and he'd uh, at least listen, visit with you. And, and he's been out in DC and quite frankly, he's, he's changed. And I, I'm saying this as somebody who has voted for John Holvin a number of times, but finally, 
finally comes out and it has a, I'm concerned about, you know, the news reports again, but there's been no action from Congress that's saying, you know, let's get to the bottom of this. Mr. President, why haven't you done anything? So I don't know that uh, it's, it's not going to go away, but it's going to take that loud pounding of the drum of those ads you talk about. I think about the Lincoln project. I think about the group that's Republicans against Trump, but also vote vets came out with it. Yeah. That, that's that was the most brutal ad. That was the most brutal ad this cycle. Yeah. So, I mean, it's one of those things that, you know, the, it's a very, it feels different this election cycle with all these groups spending all this time with these quick, hard hitting, brutally honest ads online. Um, it, it, is that something that you have noticed that it, it seems yes. to have changed the dynamics of a general election this cycle versus say 2016 or even yeah. 18? Absolutely. I, 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 before we leave the Russian bounty, yeah. um, I, I, I want to touch on this. Why, uh, is John Hoven and members of Congress talking about this? It's because there's one constituency that every member of Congress wants the support of, and that, that's veterans. Uh, veterans, are every, every candidate for Congress, every member of Congress enjoys going before the veterans of foreign wars, before the AMVETS, before the American Legion. They want that support from those veterans groups. And, and this is why this issue resonates on so many levels. Um, now, going back to, or going to your question about ads, um, politics has dramatically changed. You know, it used to be, uh, you still need the ground game. You still need to get out there. You still need to, in states that register, the 49 other states that register voters, you still need to register voters. You still need to make, make sure that these voters get out to the polls. You still need to make sure they get absentee ballots and they can vote by mail. That, that hasn't changed in politics. What has changed, though, is the way in which we consume information. And we don't consume information like we used to in, in many ways. Most of our time is spent online. So these ads were used to be boxed in. You could only do a 30-second or a one-minute ad because that's what you could afford to put up on television or you could afford to put up on radio. Now you have, you can do 45 seconds, you can do a minute 20, you can do two-minute videos, and it comes up in your feed. And you can target the voters uh, based on their interests um, and their and their browsing habits. And that is what's really come um, come forward in this campaign is this rapid turnaround of ads, whether it is from these various outside groups, the Biden campaign, what have you. And it cuts through and it gets to people in a way that is almost making the, the traditional television ads which we don't see in North Dakota because we're not a battleground state, almost makes them secondary in importance uh, to these online ads. Uh, and these online ads um, really value and put a high premium on capturing people's attention right away. The, 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 the language, the, the vivid imagery, you can be more creative in the online ads in, in many ways than you would be with the television ads. Well, and uh, the the rapid rate of viewership. I, I think yes. some of these of which I some have hit six, six million six yeah. million viewers in three hours. For yeah. I think it was a Lincoln Project ad. Yep, that that's uh, and and last before uh, I want to move on. Time's ticking here, and I want to get to the politics of this pandemic that is surging throughout pretty much every state right now. Of uh, I mentioned three groups. You know, one uh, one of them I'd say Vote Vets is more um, you know 
moderately aligned than perhaps the Lincoln Project, which is a bunch of uh, you know former Republican consultants, and then of course I mean it says it right in the title: uh, Republicans against Trump. The last three four years, you have had uh, members of that party specifically in Congress that have been just terrified to sit, to utter anything that goes against the president. They're terrified of that tweet coming out against them. I'm curious if you think that these groups being as hard hitting as they are and as rapid fire a response, I mean, the Lincoln project in particular, not only naming the president, but naming the enablers and at least the United States Senate, are you starting to see that chisel away that maybe, you know what, some of these Republicans are starting to realize, you know, I, I, I'm not going to utter the president's name in my campaign ads. Are you starting to see the, uh, the, I guess, the approach turn a little bit from Republicans really just clasping on to the, the leader that is Trump versus, look, uh, you know, we've got a party here and we've got a constituency that's not just all in on Donald Trump. Self-preservation in politics is always paramount. And at some point in time, if the poll numbers don't turn around for the president and the president, I still maintain the president can, can pull this out yet. But, but if these poll numbers don't turn around at, uh, in the very near future, Senate Republicans in particular are going to cut bait or going to try to cut bait from the president, which is going to be very difficult because the president has, you mentioned, has his Twitter account and has such a fervent following amongst um, a core group within in the Republican Party. Um, but there is on the on the Lincoln project um, in these Republican voters against Trump uh, there is evidence now in some polling uh, and this this has to you know we have to have more polls to, to verify this but there is some early evidence of slippage amongst some Republican aligned um, constituencies that's making it easier for them to say, you know what, I'm, I'm going to vote Republican elsewhere or on the ballot, but I, I'm, I'm really ambivalent about the president. I don't like the president and it's going to be easier for me to not vote for Trump. There is some evidence to that, but what the Lincoln project has said is they're going to turn their guns now on Senate Republicans. And they're, they're making, you know, making it pretty clear that they're not going to go away after the election. Uh, they they want to have a role in the 20, election. Uh, I came across an article the other day that, that had the Lincoln Project saying, um, you know, we have our targeted Senate races, but now we're looking at expanding the map and going after Lindsey Graham and um, in, in, in starting to target senators who are up in 22. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how this, how this all pans out, but there is some evidence that it's, that it's softening the ground for some traditional Republican voters uh, who have never been enamored with Trump to make it easier for them to vote against Trump. I, I just have to say this though. I mean, there's always a danger in over-interpreting the results of an election. And sometimes you don't have clarity on an election until the next election. And I think what has become pretty clear in the last few months uh, is that 2016 was really all about Hillary Clinton. If you get right down to it, yeah. she was running as the incumbent and it became a referendum on Hillary Clinton. And she did not galvanize the Democratic base. It was a base versus base election. Um, and the Republicans were more united behind Trump, even though many of them didn't like Trump. But they were galvanized in their opposition to Hillary Clinton. 
Right. Uh, and, and what Trump has done, and I've said this before, and I'll keep saying this, is, is that Trump has not expanded his base. He was elected with 46%. He needed to get another 5% of the electorate over to him. And he hasn't been able to do this. And now what you find is that he's sitting at 40, 41% in the polls. And that's what he's, you know, right now, if the election was held today, that's what he would get in the popular vote right now. But that's not enough in a two-person race to win the presidency. It's not enough to win the electoral college and it's because he's still playing to his base uh and 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 that and that base was motivated in 2016 with uh, in animus against hillary clinton mm-hmm, mm-hmm. uh one one of the things when we talk about uh, just pandering to his base uh you know that are going to be there thick and thin not only in this uh, november election but beyond um you know one of the things we the last conversation which you can find at any place where you podcast of um you know this pandemic and events. Well, it's been now two weeks since we last spoke and things have not gotten better if you haven't been following along. But I did see earlier, uh, just the other day, ABC comes out with a new poll so showing that the disapproval of uh, Donald Trump's handling of this uh, pandemic, 67% disapprove mm-hmm. of, uh, of his handling. And, and I mean, quite frankly, I'll just put it as I see it. I mean, his thought and his outlook on this pandemic this virus has been so damn short-sighted that oh and it'll just it'll magically disappear one day it'll just be gone well it's not the case and because of the short-sighted we need to get the economy back up and running we got to open things up now you're seeing cases surge and people are going to point well mortality rates are down well that legs and i hope it does stay down and i hope that with the new therapeutics and our better understanding that we don't see an uptick in that but that is also wishful thinking at this point so with all of this going on and you have the 67 percent saying ah we disapprove of the president the pandemic itself has been so politicized mass for example uh you know has become uh, well for for a, a, a larger population than what i care to admit and there are neighbors and they're in every state but oh well, i'm not gonna wear a mask you know, that doesn't do any math. Masks do you more harm than anything. Well, ask a scientist, ask, ask a public health expert. I don't care if you saw it on your, your buddy's Facebook post that you, you went to high school with, you know, um, but the politicizing of that, of the testing, of the, uh, uh, the people just simply disliking expertise, science, public health experts. How did we get here? We've had a 30-year war against experts in this country. Um, now, you've always had about 30 to 35 percent of the population that um, don't listen to experts. Uh, many of them are conspiracy theorists. Um, they're both on the left and the right. You're always going to find that one guy that thinks that JFK was killed by 14 gunmen. We faked the moon landing and elderly Elvis is shacking up with Princess Diane Barbados. I mean, you're always going to find those people. But what's changed here? is now where they used to hand out pamphlets or used to, you know, there were books that, that you had to special order to the library that didn't have wide viewership or, or readership. Now what you have is they have the internet to get their message out. And, and they have the platforms through social media. And they've been very savvy at doing this. And you have what has really struck me are the number of people just in my own life that I have always respected and thought were fairly intelligent people 
who are making comments like, well, I don't know what to believe anymore wow. mm-hmm. from the experts. And this is, this is something that happens um, when you have all of these people that are out there throwing out conspiracy theories, challenging experts, uh, when, when the facts are stubborn. You know, Daniel Patrick Moynihan said, everybody's entitled to their own opinion, but you're not entitled to your own facts. The facts are pretty clear here. You know, talk to the scientists, talk to the experts. But this also goes to another, and I think more perilous challenge for the country. And that is we have focused so damn much in the last 50 years about our rights. We talk about our rights. It's my right as an American. What we don't talk about are responsibilities. If you want all the rights, but you want none of the responsibilities, that doesn't make you a citizen. That makes you an adolescent. You know, and, and the messaging here, this is lead, where leadership comes in. As you can see, you know, it, 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 this animates me here because there's just been an abject failure of leadership at the federal level here. I'm not just talking about the president. I'm also talking about the Congress as well. The leaders, if you want to look at the leaders, you got to look at the local governments. And many of these mayors are really stepping up. The governors are stepping up. You look at Waltz in Minnesota. You look at Burgum here in North Dakota. You look at Hogan in Maryland. You know, you look across the spectrum. There are a lot of governors who are stepping up here and are showing real leadership on this issue. But the one thing that you're really not seeing is the one quality of leadership that, that you so desperately need in a crisis and that is just brutal honesty. Uh, my, my wife and daughters got me uh, the new book by Eric Larson, uh, The Splendid and the Vile, for Father's Day, which is a wonderful book about the first year of Winston Churchill as prime minister in the darkest days of World War II. And last night I was reading before I went to sleep, and Churchill had to make a terrible decision in uh, July of 1940 to sink the um, French fleet of, in North Africa, because he was afraid that the Nazis were going get to get their hands on those ships, and then that would uh, upset the balance of power uh, in, in the naval war. So he made the horrific decision, the horrible decision, to give the French the ultimatum, come join us, or we are going to have to attack you and sink the ships. And the French would not come over to the British Navy, and as a result, he had to sink those ships. 1,200 Frenchmen died as a result of that. The next day, July 4th, 1940, Churchill goes before Parliament, and and as Larson writes, he gave a very brutally honest speech, and he said Churchill's great trick, one he had demonstrated before and would demonstrate again, was his ability to deliver diary news and yet leave the audience feeling encouraged and uplifted. That's leadership. You know, just come out to the American people and say, hey, we have a virus, it does not discriminate between whether you're a conservative or a progressive, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican. This virus is a, is a real threat to our lives. It is upsetting our way of life. But you know what? We have to face facts and we have to be responsible for ourselves and our families and our friends and our communities. And, and we'll beat this. There's none of that. There's none of that. We're not hearing any of that. No. And, and that is because I think on so many levels, um, we have just become a country that has, and I'll be not to sound like the 85 year old man who wants you to get off my lawn. We've become soft as a country. We want all the rights, but none of the responsibilities. I'll get off my soapbox now. No, that was uh, <laughs> well, this. And we talked before, uh, you know, before we got into this uh, conversation about just the, 
the strain this has put on everybody. Mm. You know, I mean, vacations aren't even really a thing because they're working oh. vacations because of uh, the the economy and the fact that well, you can't have people fill in because that's more people. Go- this is so. I, the, I uh, appreciate the emotion, the animation, and I certainly wish we had that, but also on the 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 guidance you know the uh, that's missing entirely that, missing. That's completely missing but you know we we went into this in march you know this was i'm a wartime president now the president donald trump said and he had that rally around the flag moment for about three weeks and we got tired of it and we threw our hands up and now it's uh well we just hope that uh, our neighbors get used to seeing uh the the uptick in case we hope that people just oh well you know what unfortunately so and so that i had somebody with the audacity this last week on my KFGO radio show to text in and say, you know what? We have 130,000 80 to 90 year old. That's and How dare you just diminish somebody that's 80 some years old as though all because they've been 80 years old or 90, you know, now who cares if they lost a year or two with their family, their friends to see their grandkids grow up and go to school and play football. It just the, the mentality of that. Oh, well, yeah. You know, this is just the cost of living in America is absurd to me well it, it's it's like this tyler um i hope that when this is all over with and it will be over with uh eventually but i hope when this is all over with we retire the phrase underlying health conditions because life is an underlying health condition all right mm-hmm. you know we all have all have maladies we all have you know uh, things that we have to contend with but but to hear people say that and i know you bring me on here and you want to talk you know pro- for me to provide a, a analysts analysis, but I have to, I have to just set that aside for a moment here to have people say that it's like walking down the street and seeing a house on fire and saying, Oh my gosh, that house is on fire, but it's an old house. It was built in the fifties. I mean, mm-hmm. come on right. people. I, yeah. you know, the thing about masks is very, very simply this. You're not only protecting yourself, you're protecting those around you. You're protecting the, the person that does have uh, a medical condition that they don't know about yet, or they do have cancer, or they have high blood pressure, or they have, uh, you know, they're they're at they're immunocompromised, uh, you know. And this is the, the the narration on this, the messaging on this has been off terribly, because uh, you know um, social behavioral change. Is, is a fascinating area to study. And one thing that at the, at the peak of the AIDS epidemic um, in the heterosexual community in the 1980s, there were campaigns that were underway in the 80s and then into the 90s that were, that were telling um, oncologists that real men uh, wear protection. That if you're going to be a real man, you need to wear protection. And that is credited by, by public health experts at changing the mindset and changing the behavior of, of young people when it came to uh, that activity. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a missed opportunity here in telling people that responsible citizenship is to wear a mask. Being a responsible mayor, wearing that mask is a symbol of you being responsible and being respecting. And it is a symbol that as a country, we're going to lick this disease. There's none of that. Last thing I'm going to say about this, because you're absolutely right. And then I, I know what time's taken, but I do want to get into uh, the candidate Joe Biden, uh, former vice president, put this out his economic plan uh, earlier this week of uh, at this. You're, you're spot on in your example, because just the other week, 
visiting with uh, some friends from from uh, back home, and I've got a buddy who's talking about his mom and dad that both have uh, you know autoimmune issues, um, but he's not going to wear a mask. Well, what the hell are you doing, man? You know, I, I mean, you're telling me about how your your immediate mom and dad, your immediate family, there is there's underlying health conditions that experts have said, you know, if they were to contract this deadly virus, would have a, a tougher time of surviving recovery. You know, and and you're just the responsibility, the the sheer moment, just putting on a damn mask when you're out in public and you're saying, I, I'm not going to do that. It's just mind boggling to me, and it all comes down to the the politics of a pandemic which we just quite frankly cannot get through unfortunately unfortunately what has happened is that the pandemic has become another flashpoint another battle in fact in this cold civil war that we see in this country uh and and there's always been this you know this academic discussion about I know you, you and I have had this too. What would happen to the United States if we had to fight another another war, another major global conflict? Would the country come together? Uh, you know, uh, as as others have noted, you know, right now um, I, I'd be fairly pessimistic, and I hate to say that because I love my country, but I'd be fairly pessimistic because everything is so tribal and it is so partisan today, right. and we still can't even come to a consensus on wearing a damn mask. Yeah. Uh, it's just yeah. mind boggling to me. Again, I'm getting off there's my soapbox. Yeah, well, I'm sure there's people <laughs> listening to this right now, wherever you get your podcast, just rolling their eyes. Oh yeah. You're fear mongering. Well, bullshit. Ah, uh, okay. Well with that, um, I got myself a little worked up as well. Let's get to Joe Biden. Uh, economic, uh, the, the economy is not where it was. That was the cornerstone of, uh, Trump's reelection. This pandemic comes and our health crisis became an economic crisis. And now we got to have a path forward of getting people back to work, getting the economy going. Joe Biden put out a plan. Have you had a chance to review it, Jason? I looked at it. Yeah. It, it's a very moderate plan in many ways. Uh, and this is, um, this is, um, a, a, a pretty strong plan. Um, but it's a, plan that you would have seen come from, I think, um, any other, any other Democrat candidate other than, you know, uh, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, which are, which are more, uh, more progressive than Biden. Uh, it's a plan that's not going to startle Americans. It's not going to scare Americans by and large. It's mm-hmm. a plan that focuses heavily on infrastructure, uh, focuses heavily on manufacturing. He's going to come out with more infrastructure details. Um, he, you know, he has a lot of populist elements to it. Um, talking about, um, you know, going back to the 28% uh, corporate tax rate. And then we're going to use that money to invest in manufacturing, buying American and in education. So it's a pretty standard democratic yet populist uh, proposal. What I think is interesting in that proposal is that there's, there's very little in that plan, uh, maybe, maybe the $15 minimum wage, that you can rally against if you're Trump uh, and saying it's a radical, radical leftist proposal. I did what see – oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. No, I'd say the, the one response I did see from the, 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 the Republican side, the Trump – of course, these are the anonymous sources, which we, we joke mm-hmm. about every week, about uh, – aides around the president upset that there was a, a proposal brought to uh, the president to, to buy American, you know, buy American products. And uh, he hadn't signed off on it yet. Now you've got your challenger and Joe Biden coming out with a plan that's buy American and, and yeah. kind of taking that and running with it now as his economic plan. Well, look in the numbers. I mean, and on every characteristic in, in the head to heads between Biden and Trump, Biden is beating Trump except on one issue. 
and that's the economy. Mm-hmm. And and what what Trump is or what Biden is doing is he's trying to take that one remaining advantage that Trump has away from him, and he's 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 putting together a plan again or put forward a plan that's not going to scare a lot of people, um, and it's trying to undercut uh, Trump's Trump's advantage here. Um, and and he's he's flipped the script on Trump in a lot of ways. The rhetoric that Biden is using is pretty strong uh, when he's going after Trump on China. Um, and, and he's tying the economic argument and, and trade with China with what he's framing as Trump's lack of response on coronavirus, saying that Trump didn't want to offend the Chinese because he didn't want to jeopardize the trade deal. Mm-hmm. So he's, he's pushing Trump into a corner here. Uh, it'll it'll be interesting to see how it all, all pans out. But he's he's doing an all all out full frontal assault uh, on this issue. In the last few days, he's been coming out with surrogates. Um, they've been coming out pushing this in all the battleground states, uh, and it, it's it's all all aimed at undercutting that one remaining the one leg that Trump is standing on right now. Well, it's, uh, it just was rolled out earlier this week, and certainly when we talk about going forward and whether or not the president can bounce back, um, you say the one the one thing that he's currently pulling ahead of uh, Biden is the economy, and now but, we're seeing that being uh, being the target, being the focus of the the challenger. But the other the other the other underlying issues here, <laughs> underlying economic conditions, <laughs> is, is that America is really facing, if you look at it, two recessions right now. Yeah. Um, we're already seeing a softening of the economy uh, before the pandemic. The pandemic um, pushed us over the edge into a recession, but we were already moving in that direction. So once the pandemic is over with. Um, and, and the question is, how does that end? Does it end with a vaccine? And, and when you get into a vaccine, I know we're limited for time here. We can have a whole other conversation about that. Right now, you have 50% of the people saying, I'm not even going to get a vaccine. Well, uh-huh. you can kiss immunity goodbye there. But be that, be that as it may, you still are having those, those underlying economic conditions with manufacturing, which was already in a recession, um, the ag markets, of course, energy. And, and once, once the pandemic is over with, you're looking at a, a traditional recession. And then to top that off, there aren't a lot of arrows in the quiver for, for policymakers at the, Fed, right. at the Federal Reserve. And then mm-hmm. to top it off, you have these huge, historically high deficits and record debt. And that's the day of reckoning that's coming. And it's going to come far sooner than most people realize. What an uplifting way to end this week's conversation. Well, we just don't live in uplifting times, Tyler. No. That's why that's why I read about Churchill and I <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. What a way to lull yourself to sleep about okay, well Churchill had to make a decision that led to X amount of casualties. Boy, I'm gonna drift off into slumberland now. I'm gonna read about World War Two to lift yeah. my spirits. Yeah, uh, it's yeah. Uh, it, but it's the times in which we find ourselves and uh, you know, it's I, I'm I'm unfortunately a pessimist, but I'm I'm trying to find the the levity of it. And you know what? It's well, still July. We can still go out and try to enjoy the outdoors, but well, certainly we're picking up this campaign. Me, and, I I will. I mentioned Churchill, I'll, and on that note, I have to give you the one of Churchill's many great lines. This is amongst the best. And remember, Churchill was um, half American. His mother was an American heiress. 
so Churchill had a great affinity for, for America, and Churchill always said, the American people can be counted on doing what is right only after they've exhausted every other alternative. Well, we're exhausting a lot of those alternatives right now in a number of areas in which we just discussed. Well, uh, Jason, uh, you know what? I, I enjoy having these uh, recaps of the week of what great. the hell happened this week. Uh, I tell you, well, let's do it all over again next week, all right? Looking forward to it. Have a great week. Yeah, you do the same. Jason Matthews, I'm Tyler Axis. Thanks for uh, tuning in. We'll uh, recap next week. Uh, tune in. You can listen to these podcasts wherever you get your podcasts. Until then, you take care of yourselves.